Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. If this is your first time here in our show, it's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who help shape who we are. Every educator we have on this podcast, whether a teacher, a coach, a professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. We want you to be a part of this show. So tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the people in your community who deserve a spotlight. Email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. That's teacherslounge at niu.edu. And today, it is one of my favorite episodes of the year. Every year around this time, we sit down with Guilford High School English teacher Eric Serwin to break down our top education issues of the year. I'm experiencing their trauma with them. It's like my kid is hurting in this way and there's nothing I can do. And so like that part of it is really starting to wear on me personally. So if you've been listening to the show for a while, you're probably pretty familiar with Eric. And if you listen to the Teacher's Lounge radio show, then you definitely know him very well as our classroom correspondent who we check in with every month. So before we get into this year's list of the top education issues of 2023, we also take a minute to look back on what we thought were major issues last year to see if they still felt as crucial. Okay, so before we jump into our conversation with Eric, we have a few education stories we think you should know about. Late in 2022, the Illinois Public Safety and Violence Prevention Task Force held a hearing about an increase in K-12 school violence over the past few years. Around one-third of teachers in the United States say they've experienced at least one incident of verbal harassment or threat of violence from students during the pandemic. That's according to a 2022 survey from the American Psychological Association. It's a big jump from before COVID when 10% of teachers reported being threatened. That's one reason why late last year, the Illinois Legislature's Public Safety and Violence Prevention Task Force met with educators and school administrators to talk about these challenges. Some educators from the Illinois Education Association shared testimony of traumatic experiences from the classroom. Last week, a student made threats to a teacher and said he is conducting a survey with other students to figure out which teacher he should kill. A co-worker reported this incident to the principal and other management at the district. Nothing has been done and the student is back in class. The teachers from across Illinois also shared stories about students hitting and throwing chairs at them. Some educators say the massive disruption of the pandemic is behind the increase in extreme student behaviors. It could be partly to blame with younger students who might have been at home for part of pre-K or elementary school, crucial developmental years where kids learn so many social-emotional skills. Mel Gilfallon says that's what he sees. He's the president of the Rockford Education Association. He says when you think of school violence, your mind might automatically picture a big high school student threatening a classmate or teacher, but that's not what's most common. We have seen, uh, you know, an uptick in um, some aggressive behaviors, especially from our youngest students. He says Rockford teachers brought these concerns to the union early in this school year. They followed up with district administration, and teachers are still bouncing around solution ideas on district advisory boards. Solutions are difficult to find, but especially so when it comes to the youngest students. You can't just suspend somebody who's five, you know, walk them out of the building. They've got to be supervised at all times. State Representative Barbara Hernandez, a Democrat from Aurora, sits on the task force. And she says that one thing that stuck out to her during the meeting was that schools respond or don't respond to these issues in different ways. Schools not having a path 
a solution or a protocol to certain items. If a student hits a teacher or they get in trouble or safety concerns, I, I feel like there's not a specific standardized protocol. And like that threat described by the Illinois Education Association, not every teacher gets support from their school to solve these problems. Unique Morris with the IEA says administrators will often tell educators that their hands are tied. There's nothing they can do to help. They will say because of Senate Bill 100, we are not able to have any consequences, which I know is not true. That's a misinterpretation. Senate Bill 100 went into effect back in 2016. It told schools to limit exclusionary discipline like suspensions and expulsions and to only resort to it if they've exhausted other interventions. And the student's presence would be a threat to safety or significantly disrupt learning. But it's up to schools to decide when a student has stepped over that significant disruption line. Jadine Chow is the chief of safety and security at Chicago Public Schools who presented to the task force. She says in a situation where a student is having some kind of crisis episode, their best practice is actually not to remove the student from the classroom, but to remove everyone else. Then they have trained behavioral specialists who can de-escalate the situation. But after that situation, how do schools evaluate how they can help students showing extreme behavior? For one, Chow says at CPS, they look at if the student is on an individualized education plan. If so, are they receiving those services? Are they working with school mental health professionals? Does the school even have social workers on site? And if they need even more guidance, school districts are now required to have threat assessment teams to help make decisions about whether a student's presence is disruptive or threatening. And more and more school districts are taking steps to decrease exclusionary discipline. Removing a student from their classroom might work to stop the behavior now, but it may not help get down to the root causes of an issue and prevent it for the long term. Many, like Chicago Public Schools, are implementing elements of restorative justice. They say that doesn't mean no consequences, but rather, hopefully, instructive ones and interventions like trauma-informed therapy. Representative Hernandez and the task force will publish a report this year on their findings, and she says lawmakers on the task force may file school safety-related bills in the current legislative session as well. And the last story we wanted to share before our top issues conversation, Northern Illinois University recently joined a pilot program bringing virtual reality to higher ed classrooms. And I got to put on a VR headset to learn more about the surprising ways of professors using virtual reality technology. Northern Illinois University professor Zach Wall-Alexander pulls a headset over his face, ready to transport to any number of far-flung alien locales, scenic vistas, or even a virtual oval office. But he's not going there. He's going to a virtual school gymnasium, particularly the gym in Anderson Hall, where he's an assistant professor in the kinesiology and physical education department, while Alexander teaches students training to be physical education teachers. It's cool to know that it's probably, or it is, the first time being integrated in physical education across the country. He's also the first NIE professor experimenting with virtual reality as part of the university's collaboration with VR education company Victory XR. Wall Alexander just piloted it with a class in the fall and will totally integrate it into his class this spring. NIU is one of 10 pilot institutions working with Victory XR. The partnership started this fall and they built a VR version of NIU's campus, which I got to toss on a MetaQuest headset and visit with Jason Rhodes, Associate Vice Provost for Teaching, Learning, and Digital Education. Hey, Jason, we're, we are, we're here. I can hear the birds. <laughs> I, I, I hear the birds. We got the library, we got the student center over there. 
it's not the full campus. There's still lots of open cyberspace, but it includes a virtual version of Alt-Yale Hall, among a few other campus buildings. You can even go inside the student center. Uh, the bowling alley is everything, and everything is in here. It's great. I am halfway yeah. down lane 12. <laughs> The technology is not perfect. It's not photorealistic. It looks more like high-end Nintendo Wii graphics. And as I learned myself, a shaky Wi-Fi connection or network error can boot you from a session. But Celeste Latham, NIU Associate Vice President for Resources and Facilities, says the university is embracing VR's potential. She says they're planning to initiate grants for faculty to transform their curricula, and VR will be a part of that. They also held a faculty workshop in the fall to let faculty try out the technology, and she says they formed an informal group of interested educators, too. Right now, it's just Wall Alexander and his physical education classes. But... Why a PE teacher prep class as NIU's first immersive VR course? Well, for one, he already had some experience using VR with students. And he had ideas of how it could help students prepare for clinical teaching experiences in a real physical gym. In the class, they have to create lesson plans and teach them to their peers in the real Anderson Hall gym. Prior to doing that on campus, our students would go into the VR space in that same space that they're going to teach their peers, lay out the whole lesson. They would record their directions that they would give. They would record some of the feedback that they might give. And then I would watch it and kind of give some feedback on that. For him, it's all about high-quality practice. It's hard for each of his students to gain access to a gym where they can run through a lesson plan, so VR can help provide that space with a little extra creativity. I can go through the item bank and put a T-Rex and manipulate it, like flip it upside down. And you can obviously, like that's like the extreme example. I do it with cones and with baseball bats and stuff. Wall Alexander reiterates that nothing beats face-to-face instruction, full stop. But he says VR has been an effective tool for his students who have used it, and initial findings from other universities support that. And soon, it won't just be for PE instruction. Jason Rhodes says they have an audiology class interested in using VR for a project. Students could explore the anatomy of the inner ear as if they were walking through a massive one. And NIU's nursing programs want to use VR to run simulations so students can practice responding to patient situations and then go back and rewatch how they did. Other educators are already using Victory XR for classes like science and history. A history professor at another university and his students stand on and walk around a virtual map to learn about the Vietnam War, complete with VR replicas of military weapons used in the battle. Behind you over here, you see the Huey helicopter, and I'm going to have you walk Virtual reality here. isn't necessarily so is new, but Rhodes says they feel like they're on the cutting edge of its potential for education, especially with the pandemic already opening up people to virtual tools like Zoom. I think everybody wants more flexibility, more engagement with one another, and I think the VR technology just takes it to another level in terms of that sense of engagement. The headsets are still expensive and not without technical difficulties, let alone nausea for some folks. But people like Rode at NIU don't think it's a fad or a gimmick. They think for students, VR technology can actually be transformative. All right, now it's time to dig into the top education issues of 2023 with English teacher Eric Serwin. We start off by having Eric reflect on a few things he said during last year's show academic quote and a more social emotional quote so the academic one that you gave was where usually I had four students failing now I have five to ten and the one thing that I really want to ask you about is the last part of this quote which you said 
the middle is really thinning out. The students that are doing just okay. You know, there's a group of students that are still thriving, that are doing awesome, and there's a lot more students than usual that are failing and doing really poorly, and that there really isn't a middle class anymore. Is that still yeah. true? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like the middle has changed. It, it, like the middle, the middle is gone academically. Um, I think like the students that are getting like the C and kind of like the middle scores now are the ones that have figured out how to work the system. And so that, you know, like they're learning, they're absorbing stuff, but it's like, they're not invested in doing activities in order to learn. They're only invested in doing enough to get to a, a C or a D or whatever grade they want. And, and it's, yeah, it, it's become this transactional experience in the middle. But um, both sides are now, especially the students that are failing, that is still much yep. bigger than it was pre-pandemic. Yes, in, in my experience, yeah. And, and building-wide, at least in Guilford, it's still very true that our, our bottom is just bigger than it used to be, right? Yeah. Uh, just way bigger, just the students that... Um, and I think what we're finding out now is where that bottom comes from, right? Why did mm -hmm. it get bigger? We've got a lot more information because we see the kids a lot more. You know, we're not masked and everything like we were last year. And there is a ton of like home domestic yeah. issues going on. Um, you know, a quick example, like one of my students, her um, twin babies in the house. And so when she gets home from school, her task is to take one of those twin babies and care for it until it goes to bed. Um, I've got students that are working 30 hours because their job doesn't have enough workers. And so there's a lot of these like outside influences pulling their attention away from school, which always happened, but the number of kids it's happening to is just twice as big. And I think actually related to that is the other quote that again was more mental health related, which is literally, you just said, a lot of them are in survival mode. Yeah. Yeah. Where it feels like maybe we're coming out of that some, okay. but for some kids, like the pandemic has not ended for you know like maybe the the covid part has ended but the impacts um to their life which you know rings true if they lost a parent or you know a family member um things like that their life just turned and it hasn't gone back and so it's not going to go back would you say that's really the way that you see covid still impacting your classroom is that the biggest way that you see that now yeah um yeah it definitely feels like after effects at this point you know, where last year at this point we were still dealing with, you know, COVID directly. Yeah, we were in the Omicron kids. wave last time we talked for this episode. And oh, man. we were in the Omicron wave. You guys were still masked well, at this point. Peak. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, we didn't take off masks until February, March, right? Yeah. It feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> right. So that physical stuff in terms of like masking, distancing, that stuff is completely different from the way that it was last year. But I guess, yeah, again, like how are you seeing the pandemic still every day and, and are you, I guess? Yeah. Um, my classroom, it's still just kind of emotional stuff. Um, right. it's, it's more about like life was altered and now they're just dealing with a new version of living than we were used to seeing in our students prior to. Yep. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it definitely does. <laughs> so, yeah. So before we get into now our top issues of 2023. I wanted to take a, just a quick minute and look back at what we had on the list for 2022. And again, see if those did actually end up being really big deals for you in the classroom. So the first one we had on here, which again, I know this one, spoiler alert, is going to be on the list again this year, which is that we had that 2022 was the year that the teacher shortage got personal. And I remember that it continued definitely through at the last 
school year. And I did a story for NPR where I got like a short-term substitute license to see how that process worked and about right. like how dire straits schools were in just to like maintain any kind of staffing. So like that continued. Would you say that was a top story last year? Yes, absolutely. Um, and then even continuing today. Right. Um, lack of substitutes, lack of uh, teachers. Um, again, Guilford was lucky enough to fill most of its positions. But I know we were short, um, I want to say, at least one math where they had to take, you know, those five classes and kind of part them out and give them, you know, so we have a bunch of teachers teaching six classes now. Yeah, and I know and that on, so, on a day-to-day basis for covering right. people, that that's something that you've, you've mentioned in the past to me too, that like you might have to take a planning period and jump in and substitute teach a math class or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I did a lot of subbing earlier this year. Um, I think we've started to get more substitutes rolling in um, where they haven't been asking for as many substitutes. Mm. So I think we've, we've solved that problem a little bit in Rockford, at least at Guilford. Um, where we just have more substitutes available, mm-hmm. but um, there's still a lot of positions to. <laughs> there's still a lot of open classes every day, you know, where there's there's subs there because we have teachers kind of coming and going, and next year's looking worse, way worse, way way worse. Um, we're set up um, as of right now because we're starting to plan, you know, which classes we're teaching next year and stuff. And um, we had two open English positions this year. We're going to have four next year. And we already, like, we had a lot of trouble finding two good candidates for English. So I'm, I'm very concerned that we're going to be just short one or two English teachers at least next year. Would you say that's a result of people retiring? Is that a result of people uh, leaving teaching? Uh, people retiring, you know, it, yeah. it's happening. We're losing one to retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one that's leaving the district. Right. Um, and, and that's, I think, in RPS, a big a big problem is that we're I see a lot of good teachers taking jobs elsewhere, not necessarily for better pay, but just because the teacher shortage is, is making it a lot easier to find jobs outside of RPS. Or maybe they won't have to be teaching six classes a day. Correct. Yeah. And so, you know, I think we're going to see that. I'm, I'm really scared that we're going to see like an exodus from certain districts in certain areas. Because you know, hey, teaching teaching in Rockford is tough, right? We have a different population than I than I taught in even like Marengo, for example. It's a huge, it's the third um, biggest district in the state. It's a big place. Not everybody's a good fit for our population, and so like for someone that's sitting around, kind of waiting, looking for another another job to open up, like they don't have to wait very long anymore. But it could be even worse next year. You think? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely going to be next or worse. Unavoidable. And, and I think Unavoidable. It's be one of those things where. You know, we'll, we'll cobble together solutions. We'll be able to sub for a stuff. And then, like, there's just going to come a day, you know, a certain year where it's the tipping point is going to go from we're holding it together barely to everything's falling apart because the difference of two or three bodies in the building could be the difference between those two differences, you know, to those two sides of it. It doesn't take much to go from barely holding it together to completely disaster. Second one that was on the list last year was opening your eyes to student trauma so that was that's something that is definitely i would imagine still something that you're working with every day absolutely (laughs) um yeah this year holy smokes um i've because i've gotten better at like being open and kind of presenting myself as a more open person Mm -hmm. i'm getting more information from students and it is i mean at times just overwhelming just overwhelming um 
more concretely, something that we've done in Rockford is um, we now have, what do they call it, um, handle with care. Yeah. Like if the police have an interaction and there's a, you know, a, someone under the age of 18 and they're willing to tell the police who they are, um, they'll, we, we get notices every now and then of like, hey, this student is handled with care. We don't know what it means they dealt with, but it means that they were in a traumatic experience the night before involving police or fire or EMTs or something. Um, I think just police, to be honest. So we just get that notice. And so like, we'll see these kids come in and we're not supposed to tell them like, hey, we know that, you know, you had a rough yeah. night, but just kind of a little extra attention if they need, you know, if they ask to go to a counselor, like really just let them go. Um, How often would you program. say that you see that? Um, I've gotten four of those emails this year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, um, just kind of on the side, like I've, I'm building these relationships with students, right? They're, they're very unwilling to do academic work. What's been really interesting, like in January here, I feel like they've warmed up to me where now they're doing work just because it's me asking again, you know, like, so that part has gotten back to normal, but the relationship building took a lot longer. And really some of the kids, when they start to open up, like they'll stay after class and be like, I just got to tell you, you know, I had a rough night and like, the stuff they deal with is is just mind-boggling like i don't know i don't know that i would do well with it and these kids are you know then they still show up to school the next day and it's it, there's just a lot <laughs> i know that you've done you know some training and stuff related to to all this and, and being able to handle it in the classroom but like i guess just like fundamentally do you feel like well equipped to like handle and, and be there for those kids in the way that you can as their educator no. <laughs> yeah. Just for don't blame no. me. Yeah. But we do, you know, we have a phenomenal team and that's where I've really gotten good. I've gotten to know who the people on the team are. School support staff. And yeah. So I, I'm much more able to handle like hearing it and helping the kid get connected to what they need. Right. Point them know? to the right person that can do that. Yeah. But overall, uh, but then, just, like emotionally, yeah. like I just, I want a counselor because, you know, there's days when, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm experiencing their trauma with them. You know, and then like I feel very much, very fatherly, very parental towards my students, and so like to hear that my, it's like my kid is hurting in this way, and there's nothing I can do. You know, with my own kids, I can take them somewhere or do something for them or buy them something. I just get to hear about this, hand them off to the next person, and then it's like I see them the next day, and so like that part of it is really starting to wear on me personally. But I'm just, I don't know. I'm not an emotional person, but these kids are making me. <laughs> it, right. Yeah. And and also on top of, you know, trying to be there and support them, point them towards the resources, you also have to be like, oh, and by the way, did you read Virginia Woolf? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and that's, yeah. you know, I've had a lot of fun kind of changing up. I've been experimenting a lot in English 12, changing the kinds of assignments we do and spreading them out because... I recognized, you know, we, we tried to do an essay at the beginning of the year and I just recognized that typical kind of like, okay, write a rough draft, now revise it, now edit it. It just wasn't going to work for them. It didn't work for them, I should say. It was a complete failure. <laughs> um, so then we've just been experimenting with different ways to change up how we do class mm -hmm. so that there is room and time for them to feel comfortable, um, and, you know, and to use the supports that they have available. Um, so we're, you know that's happening where we just have to change the structure of what I do from hour to hour in order to meet their larger needs. Yeah. The other one we had on the list last year was about teachers being empowered through organized labor. 
And I know there's been, I've recently, at least in the higher ed level, there's been strikes at, you know, University of Illinois Chicago just had one. I know there's contract negotiations happening at NIU right now. Plenty of K through 12 schools, I'm sure, are working through that. But has that been something that has still felt top of mind for you? Uh, not top of mind. Not top of mind. <laughs> it's okay. there yeah. in the background. Right. Um, we're we're embroiled in a school board election kind of right now. <laughs> so I know. Our, we will be touching on that in just a moment. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as a whole, like our union, like we're not in the middle of a contract negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a, a large desire to see like the teachers union um, help resolve some of the problems that we have in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like that's getting louder, which is good, right? I would rather us be a part of that solution than just be the ones shouting about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then so, the the last one we had last year was about uh, media literacy. Yes. Whew. <laughs> um, so much to get into. Yeah, we haven't really done anything concretely with it. Um, we're still yeah. developing some stuff in, in our curriculum. But it's there. Um, I just did a persuasion unit. That was what we wrapped up in English Clover. They made like commercials. And it was a lot of fun to talk about, you know, this is what's happening. And for them to realize like, oh, this propaganda technique is being used on this TikTok ad I just saw. Oh, God. Like, yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, as a someone that teaches high schoolers and someone that is a father, are you on TikTok or have you been able to resist? I am not. I I watch my TikTok reels on Instagram like yeah. an old person should. <laughs> exactly. I'll catch up with a trend six months from now when it's on Instagram. <laughs> exactly. And then I can show up to my students and tell them some really outdated thing and get them to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so it does feel like something that you guys cover in class, but is it necessarily like a concrete thing that's changed over the last couple of years? No. I mean, like we're weaving it in subtly and working right. on, you know, some bigger movements for it. Interesting. Cool. All right. Well, you ready to get, get into the stuff for this year then? I am. All right. Well, I always feel like we should like, again, put an asterisk and say that like there are certain things that we won't necessarily devote 20 minutes to, but you can just assume are on the list. Like COVID-19, of course, is going to be on the list for as long as that's around, which, you know, it's going to be quite some time, unfortunately. So that we mentioned teacher shortage. I know that that was something that you had on your list. Do you feel like we covered that one adequately? Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Well, the first one that I had on my list, and you, I know, also had this on your list, was school board and school board battles. And I feel like there's 50,000 different directions that we could take this. And I know that in Rockford, though, you guys have a, a school board election that you're in the midst of now that's happening this spring. I believe all seven seats were, were up for election this year, which is super, super weird. So uh, what yeah. were you thinking in, in terms of the, the school board? So um, locally for our school board, all seven are up because they redistricted. Mm. And so anytime, anytime they move a, a line on the, on the map, they have to do all seven. Um, and so we just got our list of candidates. It was due in December. Yep. Um, we actually have a meeting tomorrow <laughs> as a union to start. We're, you know, we'll start the process, start interviewing candidates, uh, see if there's an endorsement you know, for anybody and, and then how we're going to help support them in their campaign. Um, from the candidates on the list, like I'm really, really happy. I was very nervous, but you know, there's seven seats, three of them are contested. Mm-hmm. So four people are already in. And it seems like all the candidates on the list are education minded. Um, they're looking at what's best for the district and the students. Um, 
I was very nervous that we were going to see what's happening in some of like some other districts that we've we've been meeting as union for about a year now trying to figure out like and get ready because we expected some extremists right to start running for school boards. Absolutely. And and I don't care what side they're extreme on if they don't know how to run a school district, I'd rather they just <laughs> stay on the sidelines, you know. Um and that's, you know, that's what we were afraid of. So we did a lot of talking with other districts around where they did have some extreme people run and they're, they're dealing with fallout of people that just don't know how to pay the bills. Yeah. I was say, what was the advice that they had for, for you guys? Just to get involved in, um, in the elections. Mm-hmm. And then once they get there to like connect with the school board, keep them informed of what's going on. Um, and then recognize that like, we want them to be informed about what we're doing in the classroom, but they're also hearing from everybody in the community. <laughs> so like, they might not have an accurate perception. So if our goal is just to keep them informed accurately, then we should be able to avoid any negative. But I, I, like I said, I'm really excited about the candidates. I think no matter who wins, I think we're set up for success. Right. Hopefully no one getting elected that like has no idea what ESSER funding is or something. <laughs> right. Because, you know, we talked to, um, I don't want to say any places, <laughs> but yeah, like some of our yeah. colleagues in, in near, nearby cities, you know, they're talking about like this person, you know, they got elected on one thing because they, you know, they didn't like masks or they wanted everyone to be masked, but then they don't know anything else about the job. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of funny. <laughs> the one district, which is a little south, um, they were like, we took advantage of this because we went to them and said, hey, we want to, you know, increase our stipends and we want increase in pay. And they got this really tremendous contract. But they're looking at the numbers thinking, you can't afford this. Why did you give us this deal? <laughs> so, it was an interesting conversation. So they were at least able to leverage that for some better compensation. Right. You know, so that it, I think we're going to avoid that in Rockford. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a lift because there's a few candidates we would like to support more likely, right, just based on what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll see if we can move the needle there. Right. So we got school board elections. But then again, like, there's so – school boards there's have become such a battleground in the last, you know, since the pandemic again, like started with masking and in-person versus online school and all that. But just that has filtered into so many other issues that have made school boards like so much more contentious than I think that they were prior to. And again, you're just seeing like all sorts of, I covered this past year, a bunch of uh, other districts where they had, you know, those extremist groups pushing for book bans and things like that. But then you also get issues where, you know, in, in Rockford, there's been a, a lot of protest around uh, school boards the last couple months and lawsuits. And it's going to be fascinating and at times, I'm sure, very frightening to see how that plays out over the next couple, you know, months and years in Rockford and other places, too. Yeah, because it's, it's no longer the kind of thing you can just kind of hop on and be like, hey, I'm going to be of service to my community. Like, right. You gotta. If you're on the school board, you're gonna face a lot of fire. Right, and also like there are some points where again, it's it's really good. Like more parent and community engagement in issues like is a good thing. Like having people Absolutely. more invested in education is something that we like. People that are attuned to the issues and you know protesting things that they don't want. Like that's that's all stuff that could be very positive. So like we're not saying that like inherently like parent or community <laughs> involvement is, is bad, but it has become such a battleground over the last couple of years. And it's been, again, going to be very curious to see what that looks like in 2023. Absolutely. I'm excited. Yeah. I, I think we're lucky. <laughs> we'll see if I, ask me again in a year. Exactly. 
Well, the other thing I had on my list, which again, it's something that we've covered in years past to some degree or another is about school discipline and, and student behavior. Again, we've had several different, Rockford included, uh, DeKalb, another one of schools that are rethinking the way that they do discipline, trying to uh, disincentivize like exclusionary discipline, like you know suspensions, expulsions, expulsions in abeyance. And I think Rockford, this is their first year where there's a new like student code of conduct where they wanna do less of that. I know that DeKalb again has another new student code of conduct this year. And so this, these conversations are having all over the country. And it's, again, very, very interesting to hear these discussions about, like, you know, what are the best ways that we could, like, honestly implement, you know, more restorative practices and mental health interventions while also trying to, you know, hold students accountable for extreme behavior in the classroom and, you know, what is the role of police in schools? And I'm curious what, what comes to your mind when you think about this issue. Um, it's a delicate balancing act <laughs> and, you know, anytime we change any policy, like, like the discipline code, there's going to be ripple effects mm-hmm. <laughs> and unforeseen effects. Um, so our year, it feels, it feels like it's more relaxed, right? Which is mm-hmm. I kind of like the idea, like we're not disciplining like hoods and hats the same way we used to, you know, we're like dress code, like, okay, you got a hood on it's not impacting your education or your classmates. So we're going to just meet it with not as much like harshness. You know, you're not going to get kicked out of school because you didn't take your head off. Um, I would say good, good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I think generally it's all well intentioned, mm-hmm. but it's such a complicated beast. I know. Again, right? I also want to mention that in November, so just like a month and a half ago, the state legislator had a, public safety and violence prevention task force that held this huge hearing about increase in school violence and, you know, extreme student behavior, teachers getting death threats, teachers getting chairs and tables thrown at them. So there's also that. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that was always going on. Um, One of the things that I think about is um, I understand it, it comes not just to the policy, but the implementation. Right. Right. So we'll have, um, you know, students that are like showing signs that they're like really just unsafe for other kids to be around. The policies are, you know, really aimed at protecting their rights and responsibility and and, and taking care of them because we should be not just kicking them out, but like helping them grow and overcome whatever's leading to that behavior. One of the difficult struggles is, is that like, okay, if this student is like really flying off the handle, we send them out to the office and they send them back the education of the other 30 kids in the room is really getting watered down, right? Is is really being put on pause while we're writing a referral because we have to write it right away. Or, you know, just because the discipline is to keep the kid in the room as long as possible, well, we're putting everything on pause for everybody trying to help one student, you know? And there's so many of those students where maybe it's two in each room, but we only have six support specialists to send them to. And we have a hundred kids like that, that need that support, you know, in a building of 2000 people, you know, going back to that, like, you know, where COVID exploded the bottom, <laughs> you know, like yeah. the, the, the behaviors, the most extreme behaviors, the number of students behaving that way has increased a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's also the behaviors themselves have just gone a little further. Right. Because, because, you know, they're teenagers, right. Wherever we draw the line, the teenager is going to push beyond it. 
So if we keep drawing the line softer and softer and softer, well, they're going to keep pushing further back. And so we have teachers and, and, and it's all very complex and it's not really well rolled out all the time. Um, and I don't know that the laws <laughs> really understand the reality of what the discipline code is for. And right? I think that there's also issue in some schools where some teachers and ministers don't really like some of the laws are a little bit vague and don't exactly know what these lines are, what to do in certain discipline situations where they know that, you know, they're supposed to disincentivize using exclusionary discipline and, you know, they're supposed to keep students in their class as long as possible. But like, it's kind of vague as to like, what is the line and what is over the line? And it's kind of up to a bunch of different people to decide what that is. And I think the questions start to become like, how do you proactively stop this? Like, how do you identify kids that, you know, might be leaning towards some extreme behaviors and like get them into, you know, some kind of trauma-informed therapy or something to make it less likely for them to, you know, fly off the handle in their class and and hit their classmate or something like that. And so it's, I think there's a lot more schools that are going to be having those conversations about like, how do we effectively do that? All right. Well, one of the last ones that I wanted to bring up that I had on the list before we get into a couple honorable mentions was this idea of flipped classroom design, student-led classrooms. And I was thinking about it honestly too, because, you know, the pandemic, everyone talked about this time to reset and completely rethink the way that we do education. Honestly, like three or four times in the last year, I have had people cold email me who I do not know who teach different grade levels at different school districts being like, this has completely changed my life. This has completely reshaped what I do as an educator. And so I had a couple examples I can run through and I'll get your reaction to. So we had one person that told us about uh, science modeling, which was a high school, like sophomore and juniors chemistry class where She's completely thrown out doing lectures at the beginning of the class, and it's pretty much just like a hands-on experiments and classroom conversation. So they, like, introduce a topic. So they might talk about something like, you know, as complicated as, like, gas laws or atmospheric pressure, but they're not allowed to use the textbooks even to define those terms. They have to just, you know, using the words that they know, come to a definition as a class. And once they do that, they jump right into a lab examining that. And they spend three or four days doing labs until they feel like they've got a handle on it. And then they come back and in small groups, they present that information back to the rest of the class. And they have discussions about it and spend a day. I I think it's called whiteboarding where they do that. The other example I have is, uh, I think something that you're already familiar with, which is PDSA, Plan, Do, Study, Act. And that was something actually in in Rockford, a middle school English teacher reached out to me and was like, this is incredible. And again, it's like kind of the same idea where students get to choose a a group of standards that they want to learn. And it could be something like, you know, how to identify when an argument is biased. And then they have to explain what that means in their own words. And they have to map out their own project to show that they've engaged and they've mastered that topic and that standard that they got to choose from. So yeah, people do, I think anything from like people make videos, people do slideshow presentations, all sorts of stuff like that. Have have you had any experience with with any of that? Yeah, um, for me, it's been more of a gradual change over time. Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of the last big step for me recently was uh, the idea of grading the process, not the product. 
Um, so the way it shows up in my classroom, like we wrote, you know, a personal statement essay. And in the past, what I would do is like, okay, this is what you produced. I'm going to sit with my grading rubric and kind of grade your introduction, your conclusion, things like that. Um, and it's like grading the product. So now what we're trying to do and trying to figure out ways to do it is grading the process. Right? Like, um, not only will they turn in that product, but they'll include a reflection. You know, like here's what I did in my introduction. Here's what I wanted to do. And here's, you know, did I hit my target? Yes or no. And here's what I think I could have done to make it better. Right. They'd be self-reflective. Yeah. Um, and so we're grading not just what they were able to produce in the time frame that we had, but also if they can demonstrate through that reflection that like, hey, I see this weakness in my writing. And if I had another two weeks or if I had another day, I would make these changes to make it better. I don't need them to necessarily make those changes because they've de they're demonstrating in that way that they can that they do have the skill. So like that's kind of the new, at least for like writing composition activities that we're doing. Um you know, trying to find the balance of that is really tricky, but but the push is to get them more focused on the way that they learn instead of like, you know, walking out saying, okay, I know how to do a personal statement. I would really w rather them walk out saying, I know how to write an essay. Right, you know, process essay. over results. Exactly. Um, and you and find them to be like pretty, pretty self-aware of what, you know, they need to fix and what they need to correct and what they could improve for next time? It depends on the kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, so I'm doing my reflection with my students today, you know, over the course of the semester, um, we're, we're getting there, but a lot of them have gotten through school, um, especially the last couple of years, you know, <laughs> where it's like, there's just a task assigned to me. I complete enough of it to get some points and turn it back. And so when they come across this thing where it's, they can't just produce a product and get a grade. They actually have to put some thought into it, no matter what they do. Um, it's a bit of a lift for some of them and they're reacting pretty strangely, but then like over time they're starting to see the value of it where they're, they're reflecting on like, Oh, I know that I can do this. I just didn't have time. And here I did it here, but I didn't do it here. You know, and like it's, it's taking the learning and putting it back in their hands and, and like all those different things, the PDSA, the science modeling, all the stuff you mentioned, like it's, I think it's all focused on that is like reminding the students, like it's your job to learn. <laughs> so what are you going to do about it? And we're here right. to help and guide and, and provide you all the necessary whatever, but you got to do, you know. Right. And I think it makes sense, especially in like right after having the last couple of years of pandemic learning where people are having trouble like engaging with their learning right. in a lot of ways that like if you can find a way to give them ownership of it and feel like they're the ones leading it, then maybe that's a way that you can more easily get them re-engaged, re-energized and refocused on it. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's been coming into education in small ways. Um, different initiatives were aimed at that and maybe fell short. Sure. And so, like, over time, we're getting a lot closer to it. It's it's positive, but it's going to be it's going to be messy on the way. Yeah, of course. OK, so we had a couple near the end here, just a couple honorable mentions that we'll try to speed through before we get to get out of here. Okay. And one of them that I've been thinking about is just this idea of data and teacher collaboration. You know, again, this could come in a myriad of different ways. This could be these ideas like, you know, professional learning communities where you have groups of teachers either at the same grade level or that teach the same subject that get together like once a week, once every two weeks and, and look at data or just talk collectively about trends they're seeing in the classroom, either like academically or behavior wise. 
or it could be like we've did a story where we talked about this idea of, of freshmen on track, right? And working with freshman students that are uh, maybe more susceptible to, or that are starting to fail a few classes that are worried about, you know, falling off track to graduate in four years and making sure they have like a steady foundation. And so there's a group of teachers that just focus on, you know, working almost as like case managers for these freshmen to make sure they have a solid foundation going into high school. And so I've been hearing more and more about these like groups of teachers collaborating, you know, making better use of data, having more access to data. Uh, do you feel like the school is emphasizing that kind of collaboration more now than they did in the past? And then do you feel like it is also like helpful more or less? It's a mixed bag, right? And, yeah. and I'm sure anybody out there with any job is familiar with like you can over data things. Right. Um, and man, you know, education, we are awash in information. Um, it's so we meet in, in Rockford Public Schools. We have late starts for secondary schools, so like middle and high. Um, and so we meet once a week with our academies and our, they call them PLCs, but it's like our department or the classes that we teach the same as other teachers. Right. Um, and we're always looking at data. The big push this semester at Guilford has been looking at our students that are failing um, this current semester, right? Because if, if we just captured the students that are here showing up, um, you know, that, that show up and like try, they should not be failing, right? We, we should be able to provide them the resources they need. So that was our big push where we took all of our students that were failing as of like week three or four, and then each academy selected a bunch of students. Um, and then we developed, you know, interventions that we tried out for the last six weeks where we update every other week or so, you know, how many Fs they have, meet with them, talk with them, help them out, and then like see where that goes. And we're still, you know, compiling that data to see, did we move the needle? So it's, it's right. very, like, everything we do is data-driven. Um, I'm not always thrilled with focusing on students that are failing. Um, yeah. Because within our PLCs, then, we do talk about, like, when we did the personal statement essay, all of us did personal statement in English 12. And then we're looking at the rubrics and the data and saying, okay, you know, 90% of our students, all they understand how to write a good introduction, they're good. But maybe they fell down on, on this particular skill. And so, like, when we have those common rubrics and common assessments, we can do that where the assessments kind of tell us. The ironic part is, is that as classroom teachers, we don't need that data. <laughs> we can just sit down in a room and be like, all right, where did your students fall down on this assignment? And we'll kind of share with each other. And then if we find that like, hey, my students really were bad, I just keep using introductions, but like, man, their intros were bad. They were just terrible. What did you do? And then I'll pick up lesson ideas from the other teachers and see what they did. Or, you know, maybe ideas they have from other things they do, you know. And so we collaborate that way. And it's very much like that's just how we live. That's that's the water in which we swim, right? Is data and collaborating. Um, the days where a teacher's sitting alone developing lessons by themselves should be over. And if anyone's out there like that, like, ah, stop it. <laughs> Go talk to a colleague. Right. And that makes sense is like a we were talking about focusing on students that are are failing and identifying them early. Yes. Kind of reminds me of the fresh bench track thing where you're like trying to use data to be proactive and help. So freshman on track, we actually track um, within our academies that percentage, and it's on a it's on a wall in the office, it's on a wall in the yep. teachers lounge. Um, so we're we're always reminded of how many you know like each group of students, how many of them are on track, how many of them are not. The value of that metric in particular is is not so helpful, but they need that metric at the building level to make building right. level movements, you know, and decide where to put resources and, and things. So yeah. It's, it's good because when I got into teaching in 05, you know, we dealt with grades at the end of the year and that was about it. Or right. we dealt with the once a year, we get the data from last year. 
Right. Otherwise, it's just vibes of what's going on in the classroom, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so big data is coming, and it's, I mean, it's here, and it's almost overwhelming. I, we could do a whole hour just on data. Absolutely. Other honorable mention that we had in here was chronic absenteeism. And when I brought this up to you before the we started recording, you were like, chronic absenteeism for the teachers or the students? And I'm like, well, I guess a little bit of both. But for people that don't know, like when it comes to students, at least, chronic absenteeism is when students are missing at least 10% of the school year, which, Eric, that is something that you have people that miss a lot more than 10%, I think you told me. I do. I have, I actually, so I run, I keep an Excel spreadsheet and I keep track of a bunch of stuff. Student absences is one. And as of the first semester, first half of the year is done, the average number of days missed by students is 10 and a half. So if I take all the absences from all my students, divide by the number of kids I got, on average, they're missing 10 and a half days each. But the range is from zero. I have a, a number of students who have missed none all the way up to like 30 days, 20 days, 25. It's it's pretty terrible. <laughs> How does that look compared to the past couple of years? I think that in 21, oh. when people got back in person, it was like that was something that people were really focused on. And then I think in a lot of districts, it went up again last year. And so do you feel like it's still in the same range as it was last year? Or are things maybe headed down the numbers um, are better than last year, but they're still, I mean, the first time I did this about four years ago was the year right before COVID. So it was like 2018, 19. Yeah. Um, the average at the end of the year was 12. So to kind of put it in perspective, we're at 10 and we're only we're halfway, halfway through the year. Right. So it's still really, really bad. Um, I'd have to sit and look at this stuff from last year, um, but I think we're doing a little better than last year, but it's almost like we set a new expectation that school can be done while not present in the classroom. And it really, it's, it's just not true. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like we can, we can have them learn things, but that was the big takeaway from the remote year is that the students that didn't engage with activities with other students in the classroom learned less. Um, so it's a shame. And then like for staff absenteeism, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of fact, you know, factors. I mean, we've got the illnesses and everything, and there's right, more, for so much. There's more pressure on us to like if, when my kid is sick, you know, instead of just giving them some Robitussin and sending them to school, like we're supposed to keep the kids home, so we have to stay home. Um, and there's a lot of factors coming into that, and the pressure of the work. This might be it might be a, an odd statement, but I think we might be one of the few professions that we take days off of work so that we can get caught up on work, right? The number of staff that I see take days off to get caught up on grading, where they literally take a sick day to sit at home and grade for six hours or write lessons or whatever they need to do, is astronomically high. Like it's, it's really bad. I don't think this is a much of a divergence, but like I remember, as people were coming back in person, like twenty one, yeah. there were a lot of schools that the schedule would allow you like one day or like a half a day on Friday, where like students weren't in person that teachers actually got to use as like a chance to either catch up on that kind of work or great. Like it seems like that for a while, that kind of work they tried to sort of build it into the schedule at least a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and it's. Um... It was nice when it was there. We've had a lot of conversations at Guilford with friends, just that like, as bad as it was when we were remote, we still had huge chunks of time to get caught up on, on doing all the data entry, on you know feedback, everything. And as bad as it was, we had a lot more time to do it. All right, last one here is we had, and again, I don't know if this is 
on everyone's top issues of the year list, but it's on mine as something I'm really curious about learning more about and interviewing people about, which is the idea of, is it time to completely rethink how much we need standardized testing at all? I think for years we've had the conversation that this is a uh, not a great metric for students' success, not a good barometer of how well students are doing, maybe more of a barometer of you know, how wealthy their family is or how much their district can devote to test prep. But uh, what about you, Eric? What do you think? Uh, I've never liked standardized tests. <laughs> I mean, I did when I was a student because I did really well on them. Right, um, yeah. But as a teacher, and then I've tutored privately for a long, long time, uh, which, I mean, I stopped doing it for money. That's a long story. Um, because I, I recognize it for what it is. I don't use multiple choice tests in my classes anymore because they don't tell me anything about what the student knows or don't know. Um, and then as a tutor, I, I learned very quickly to train my, my, you know, test prep students to treat it as a game because you can get the right answer without knowing the skill and there's just a few tricks. And so if, if a student has a teacher who teaches them those tricks, they do better, right? And so like there's all, there's so many factors about what those scores show that I don't think they really show much of anything useful. And so it'd be and nice to find other ways to measure it, especially when we have so much data now. <laughs> right. And especially since with the pandemic, you know, in 2020, there was no IAR. There was not a lot of that standardized testing. So it felt like, again, another moment to reassess how we do things. And I think for the most part, we've kind of just jumped right back into that just to a large degree now. Yeah, because it's one of those things where the, the nature of teaching and, and education, because we're a government funded entity, we got to have something that shows we're doing stuff, right? And so we have <laughs> right. this kind of like this thing that looks like it's telling us that information, but it's only telling us this one teeny tiny part of what's actually happening here. So, yeah, we, it would be great to see that go away, but I think it'll be it'll be around for the rest of my career, probably. <laughs> As you say, it's pretty entrenched at every level at this point. Yeah. And that's not even touching on like the uh, the money interests that go into it. It's a big business. Exactly. Yeah, there's it's a huge business. A lot of players. Well, that was that was all I had. Yeah, I'll let you get back to the school day now. Thanks Thanks. so much for for taking the time. Thanks so much for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Eric. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do subscribe or leave us a rating, share it, whatever you can do. It really is the best way to help us out so we can get even more perspectives. You can subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter over at wnij.org. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the music you hear each and every episode of this show. Thanks to Spencer Tritt for our Teacher's Lounge logo. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.